0: It's that time of year again, when people turn their minds to food, fun, and family. Yes, it's Christmas, the most wonderful time of the year, they say, where there's shopping, baking, decorating, and so many festivities to attend, not to mention singing about the jolly old man in red and white who distributes gifts around the world. But hold on now, is that really what Christmas is all about? A visitor from the North Pole who showers us with material goodies? Of course not but how many people actually stop and give a moment's serious thought about it? We hope that you will. Today's message with speaker Marvin Dirksen will focus our attention on the baby in Bethlehem's manger and the staggering mystery of the Incarnation. We hope that what you hear will open your heart to the marvelous truth of God walking with men and His wonderful love for sinners. Tonight I'd like to look at what
1: I have called the mystery of the manger, and now, the actual details of the birth of Christ are certainly known to be part of the biblical account. There was the long trek from Nazareth in the north of Galilee down to the southern part of Judea to the small village of Bethlehem. They were required to do this because of registration demanded by Caesar in view of a new tax that was going to be implemented. Then of course, there was the no vacancy signs that they saw everywhere when they got to Bethlehem. There was no room for them in the inn, and so they were given the outside place. Of course, was the angelic message that came to those very frightened shepherds on the hillside of Bethlehem. And then, of course, yes, there was the babe in the manger. Now, all of these were certainly uncommon, unusual features of the story, but they weren't mysterious, were they? No, the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the manger, involved the identity of the babe in the manger who he is, and what he became, that the wee babe in Bethlehem's manger was none other than the eternal Son of God, God in human flesh. What a moment, what a truth. I'd like to just read a couple of scriptures. The first one is found in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 7, and we'll read verse number 14. As Isaiah writes, he's actually writing 700, 750 years before the event in Bethlehem. But this is what he writes. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we understand that that word means God with us. A second reading of the Gospel of John chapter 1. And we'll read verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then down to verse fourteen, and it says, "And the Word was made flesh; the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us." And John could write, "We beheld His glory; the glory is of the Only Begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." I'd like to read one final passage, this time just part of a verse in First Timothy chapter three and verse number sixteen. These are the words of Paul as he's writing to. A co-worker, Timothy, he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Some of you may remember the royal baby fever that gripped Great Britain, and I'm sure many other parts of the Commonwealth back in the month of July of 2013. If you were around, you'd remember that William and Kate were expecting their first child That child would become the third in line of succession to the British throne. And so it was a big thing. The media, as you'd expect, they actually camped outside of St. Mary's Hospital for three weeks, hoping to be the first to report the news of a new birth. And yes, on July the 22nd, 2013, Prince George Alexander Louis was born and all of Great Britain cheered. How different was the birth in Bethlehem? It wasn't in the Lindo wing of St. Mary's Hospital that the Savior came into humanity, but it was really in an outside place, possibly in a rough cave or in a very crude structure, that the entrance was made. There were no royal attendants. There were no specialist doctors, or nurses. No, it was Mary herself who had just given birth that tenderly wrapped her firstborn son in those swaddling bands and carefully laid him in the manger, the place where cattle ate from. You know, even the acclaim and the response of society was so different. It was only just a few shepherds, the lowest rung of society that came to gaze upon the child and to leave with wonder and with worship in their hearts. The Savior was given the outside place from the get-go. Indifference, lack of awareness, ridicule, it devolved to hatred, and finally, rejection. And ultimately, there was the demand of death for him, for they believed that he was an imposter. Why is it that 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ is still the center of attention? Interestingly, he is either hated or he's loved. He's either ignored or he's appreciated. He's either blasphemed or he's worshipped. He's either ridiculed or he is adored. Why the difference? The difference is because of who he is and of what he became. He is the eternal Son of God, God in human flesh. And as we sometimes sing, Verily God, yet become truly human, lower than angels, to die in our stead. You see, when we come to the babe in Bethlehem, we need to understand that Bethlehem was not the start of his existence. Hope we understand that. Bethlehem was not the start of his existence. You know, when any of us were born, when our children or grandchildren were born, It was the creation of a new personality. There was a new life that had come into view, one that had never existed before. But you know, when Jesus Christ was born, it was not the creation of a new personality at all. No, rather, it was the coming into this world of a person who had existed from all eternity. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the mighty creator himself. This was something brand new in the history of the universe. And it's no wonder that the angels were thrilled to be able to declare the news that God had drawn near, that God had visited planet Earth, that the mighty creator himself had stepped into his whole creation. The father of eternity, the timeless one, was now marked by time, and that heaven had come down to earth. I couldn't help but think of Psalm 8, where David, the psalmist, was obviously looking at the heavens the vast starry universe overhead of him, as he thought about the greatness of God and the smallness of man, as he thought about the holiness of the God of heaven and our sinfulness, he couldn't help but write, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you actually visit him? But visit God did. He came right to where we are. And so as we come to Bethlehem, we understand that Jesus had a birth, but he had no beginning. Uh, That's hard to understand, isn't it? He had a birth, but he had no beginning. You see, he never ceased to be what he'd always been, God, but he became what he had never been before, God in human flesh. So I wonder, have you ever thought about what he actually became when he came into this world? John chapter 1, verse 14 that we've been able to read tells us, the Word became flesh. That simply means that he became a real man, just like ourselves. Yes, apart from sin. But there was flesh, there was blood, there were bones. He had emotions, he had feelings, he grew weary. He was just like ourselves. He became a man. And that's why Paul could write to Timothy, and he says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested. God was revealed in flesh. You see, the invisible God had now become visible. But there's something else that John 1.14 tells us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he became a resident. He became a man. He became a resident. He tabernacled among us is what the word means. Or as I like to say, he pitched his tent in our backyard. You know, he didn't cloister himself in some secluded tower. Or he didn't give, you know, infrequent sightings, just come out every once in a while. He wasn't even a tourist that came to planet Earth for two weeks to look around and then go back. No, he became a resident. He lived in Israel for 33 plus years. Lived in Nazareth for the first 30 years. He worked with his hands. He was known as the carpenter's son. And so he came to where we were as a resident. But I can tell you that alongside of these truths, he also became a servant, a humble servant. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he made himself of no reputation. He wasn't vying to climb up the social ladder. He made himself of no reputation and he took on him the form of a servant. That's an amazing thing when you think of the tremendous stoop that he endured. You see, he came to bless. He came to serve. The Bible says he didn't come to be waited on and to be pampered. No, he came to give light to those that sit in darkness. He came to bring blessing to undeserving sinners. He came to lift up sorrowful hearts, and he came to bring peace and forgiveness to the guilty. In fact, on one occasion in John chapter 4, he says, My meat, or that which I live for, that which gives me strength, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He was a humble servant. And you know, I am amazed when I read John chapter 13, just a few hours before the suffering of the cross, and yet there in the upper room with the disciples around him, he gets up from supper, lays aside his garment, puts a towel around his waist, takes a basin of water, and he actually stoops, and he washes the feet of his disciples. The Lord of life and glory, stooping to do the work of a humble servant. But let me tell you another thing he became. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, give us amazing words. It tells us of the one who was rich. Yet for our sakes and for your sakes, the Bible says, he became poor just so that you through his poverty might be made rich. He became poor. We've already noted that his birth was surrounded by poverty. But you see, his life was marked by poverty as well. On one occasion, he was speaking to an individual, and he said, you know, the foxes, they have their dens. He said, the birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He never owned a home. There was never a place that he could call home. Somebody said he was the homeless stranger in the world, his hands had made. He became poor. But when I come to the cross, I am made aware that poverty surrounded his pathway there in the suffering. You see, he was stripped of everything apart from a heart of love. And the very soldiers that pierced his hands and feet with those Roman nails ultimately gambled for his clothing that they had taken from him. But there was also the poverty of loneliness that marked him. The prophet could write, I looked for some to take pity, and there was none. And for comforters, and I found none. He scanned that crowd, and there was no one that identified with him. He was forsaken. He was abandoned. He was left alone. He became poor. And yet, my dear friend, I need to tell you, he became poor just so that you, through his poverty, through all that he so willingly became, that you might be rich. And tonight, I'm one of millions of people that have come to know him. And I am eternally rich with eternal life, with the forgiveness of sins. It's all found in Christ. But I need to tell you one more thing that he became. He became the Lamb of God to deal with the problem of our sin. You know, the, the Bible in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 tells us that he was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's interesting. A lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That makes me aware that his death was part of an eternal plan. The cross and Calvary was not an afterthought with God. No, it was part and parcel, the very center of that eternal plan. And so when he came, he came as the Lamb of God that would go to the altar of sacrifice, that would lay down his life as the payment for our sins. And that's why when we look at the mystery of the manger, we understand that this was an eternal plan that was now brought into effect, that what had been planned in eternity past was now moving. To completion. Perhaps you're wondering at the wording that a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. That's an amazing verse, isn't it? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I have to acknowledge that that statement, that truth, is incomprehensible to the human mind. I can't pretend to understand it, and I certainly can't presume to explain it, but how wonderful it really is. You see, this conception was to take place in the womb of a virgin. It was a one-time-only event that had never happened in the past and would never happen again. The conception was to be brought about by the Holy Spirit of God coming upon Mary, coming upon the Virgin, and the power of the highest overshadowing her. The coming upon caused the miracle of the conception, and the overshadowing was a time of special guardianship while Mary carried in her womb the Son of God. You say, why is that so important? My dear friend, it's absolutely important because for Christ to be able to die for our sins, he must be born as a human being. God cannot die and so he must become a man. But for the Lord Jesus to be able to die and to pay for the sins of the entire world, he must also be God for only God is able to deal with our sins. And so he came into this world born of a virgin, a real man. We need to understand that Joseph was not his father. He had no part in the conception and no part in the birth. Because if Jesus had been merely the son of Mary and Joseph, he would have been just like ourselves, just a, a mortal man with a sinful nature. There would be no Christmas story. No, but thank God he came. Verily God, yet become truly human, sinless, spotless, the Lamb of God. But perhaps you're wondering, why did he come anyway? What was the great purpose for his coming into this world? This tremendous stoop that he so willingly embraced. Didn't he know that he would be despised and rejected of men? Yes, he did. Didn't he know that the pathway was going to lead to a cross? Absolutely, yes, he did. But he came all the same. And tonight I want to tell you that there are some wonderful purposes for the incarnation. Let me give you three before I close. One of the great purposes for the babe in Bethlehem coming is the great purpose, the great focus of Revelation revelation. You see, he came to reveal the very heart and essence of God. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ is God in focus. So if you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus Christ. John the Apostle, one of the disciples of the Lord Jesus, wrote in John 1 and verse 18 that no man has ever seen God at any time. But he says, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, and right alongside of the Father, he has declared him. He has told him out. He has revealed him. So when we read John chapter 1, verse 1, we have read these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's interesting that one of the names of the Lord Jesus is the Word. The full expression of all that God is. And so when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we can actually see what God is like. As we listen to his words, we can hear what God says. We can actually touch the Son of God because he became one of us. And you know, as people looked at him, as he revealed the very essence of God, what did they see? When they looked at Christ, they understood that he was holy, that there was no sin, no blemish, no flaw in him. When you look at the Lord Jesus, you find that there's only absolute perfection. No sin, no blemish, no flaw. In fact, every honest person, whether they were his disciples and those that loved him, or his enemies, those that hated him, every honest appraisal of Christ came to the very same conclusion. The Roman governor could say, I find no fault in this man. The thief on the cross had to say, this man doesn't deserve to be here. He has done nothing amiss. And he must have wondered, why is he dying? The disciples could say, he did no sin. Paul, the intellectual, could say he knew no sin. No impure thoughts. He knew no sin. And John could go to the very core of the being of Christ and he says, in him is no sin. They saw absolute holiness with regard to the revelation of the heart of God. But they saw something more than just holiness. They saw omnipotence and they saw omniscience. Omnipotence is all power. Omniscience is all knowing. And as we follow the life of the Lord Jesus, we find that yes, He did actually still a raging storm just by the word of his power, howling winds, crashing waves into the the ship. And yet the Lord Jesus rose from that hard bed. And with just simple words, he said, peace, be still. And the wind stopped and the sea became flat calm, the evidence of omnipotence. He was able to raise the dead back to life again. He was able to feed thousands of people. On one occasion, there were 5,000 men plus women and children. So there may have been 10,000 or 15,000. But he took a little boy's lunch of five little buns of bread and two small fishes. And he fed the entire crowd, not just a little morsel. But they had all that they could eat. And there was food left over. He's also marked by omniscience. He knows everything about us. He knew what was in man. He knew our thoughts. He knew our past. He knew where we were. He knew our response. Yes, he knows our futures. He is the all-knowing Christ. But let me tell you, when they looked at Christ and when we look at Christ, we see the very heart of God. A heart of amazing love, of tender compassion, of grace, and of mercy. It's an amazing thing to realize that he actually wept over a city that he desired to bless. He longed to bless them, but they wouldn't have him. They rejected him, and he wept over a city. We see him standing alongside of two grieving sisters. They had lost their brother. And it just says, Jesus wept. We follow his pathway and he walked hundreds, likely thousands of kilometers to touch the untouchables, to comfort the sorrowful, to forgive the guilty, and to give peace to troubled hearts. You know, when we listen to the Christ, when we hear his words, we understand that his words are without equal. He made great claims He gave wonderful promises and invitations, but the wonderful thing and the remarkable thing about Jesus' words is that he fulfilled those claims. He delivered on the promises. He came by way of revelation, but I need to tell you there's another great purpose. He came for redemption. He came to personally deal with our greatest problem, the problem of our sin. He actually came to put away sin but it was by the sacrifice of himself. The price was required, the price of blood, the price of death. And he came to actually put away sin. Peter writes, Christ also has once for all time suffered for sins. He was the just one. We were the unjust ones. And he suffered for our sins that he might bring us to God. You see, his perfect life qualified him to be the sin bearer. But you see, it was his death. And the bloodshed that actually paid that great debt, that actually bridged the great chasm that existed between God and man. And the Lord Jesus there at the cross, by way of redemption, has broken the chains of sin. He has satisfied every righteous claim that God has against us. And tonight there is salvation. There is redemption. There is the freeing from slavery and bondage, all because of this great person that came. So let me ask you, have you ever personally thanked him for dying for your sins? Have you ever received him personally as your Savior? Because you see, that's why he came. He came to make you his own. He came to forgive your sins. He came to give you everlasting life. And it's only those that will receive him that are brought into that great blessing. But there's one more thing as I close. He came that there might be a relationship between us and our God. You see, that's why we're made. We're made by him, and we're made for him. And so he has made us that there might be this relationship, this enjoyment of his presence, both in life and, yes, for all eternity. I was just reading today in John chapter 14. Again, it was in the upper room just before he went to the cross. And he was telling his disciples that were a little bit perplexed, a little bit troubled. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He wants us to be with him. He wants us to be with him forever. My dear friend, that's why he came. That was an eternal plan. And yes, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, that we might be brought into God's family. Let me ask you, have you ever received him? You see, what you do with him will determine your eternal destiny. And so I trust that you will crown him as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, your Savior, and that tonight you might come to know that he came to die for your sins, and he's inviting you to receive him.
0: Why did he come, the babe in the manger? Well, revelation, to show us the character of God in all his beauty and glory. Redemption, to put away our sins by the sacrifice of himself. And relationship, to invite you to trust him and come into his family. What wonderful truths we've heard this evening. We hope that you will take them to heart this Christmas and come to know this gracious Savior as your very own. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at anchorpointradio at gmail dot com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by Believers in Christ who are meeting at various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday as well as other meetings such as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. If you've been challenged by today's message and would like to know more about the truth of the gospel or of gathering unto the name of the Lord Jesus Christ following New Testament principles, take a look at our Anchor Point website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the gathering center nearest you. My name is Glenn Todd.